video and the military lied. They said they didn't have it, they couldn't find it, and then we only saw it when Chelsea Manning very courageously gave it to WikiLeaks to publish. Uh, until that time, the narrative that the military had spun out about that incident was a complete fiction. It was a lie. That's Chris Hedges, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Chris Hedges. Truth is the first casualty of war. In the old communist countries, comrades who fell out of faith with the party bosses were crudely cut out of photographs. Today, in the digital era, it's easy to electronically eliminate a person and or their work. Take Chris Hedges. His show, On Contact, was aired on RT, a Russian state TV network. It was on YouTube when suddenly its six-year archive of programs disappeared. Hedges said this, I vanished. In totalitarian systems you exist, then you don't. I have a hard time seeing how a detailed discussion of Ulysses or the biographies of Susan Sontag and J. Robert Oppenheimer had any connection in the eyes of the most obtuse censors in Silicon Valley with Vladimir Putin. And then he warns, if this happens to me, it can happen to you. Our guest today is Chris Hedges. He's an award-winning journalist who's reported from the Balkans, the Middle East, and Central America. Cornel West calls him the greatest radical writer and journalist of our generation. He writes a weekly column for Shearpost.com. He's the author of many books, including Death of the Liberal Class, Wages of Rebellion, and America, the Farewell Tour. I talked with him on March 28th. Welcome to the program. It's good to see you again. Thanks for having me, David. Well, a couple of bookend quotes I'd like you to talk about. Uh, Truth is the first casualty of war, which is attributed to um, Senator Hiram Johnson, and Randolph Bourne's War is the Health of the State. In wartime, everything is sacrificed for the cause. The press and most of the public always falls in line in a conflict, Challenging the dominant narrative, even if you're speaking truth, is unacceptable. It will see you marginalized. It's certainly been true over the Ukraine conflict, but it's true in every conflict. Uh, and Bourne's statement that war is the health of the state means that in wartime, the state, with the excuse of national security, can accrue to itself all sorts of power that it wouldn't in peacetime be able to express censorship, uh, control of resources, uh, everything has to be sacrificed for the war effort, uh, so you can't have strikes. Uh, uh, and of course, Bourne was speaking about the First World War. Woodrow Wilson was the kind of best exemplar of this. He used the war, and remember, he had campaigned in uh, 1916, I believe, he, his slogan was, he kept us out of the war. But once the war started, he passed the Sedition Act and the Espionage Act, which was used to shut down his left-wing critics like Eugene V. Debs, who he threw in prison, it was used uh, later to deport uh, Emma Goldman, uh, Alexander Berkman, 
and others. It was used to shut down the newspaper, the masses. None of this had really anything to do with a war effort. It had to do with crushing the left. That sets the template uh, for what happens in a conflict. It is not just about hunting out people who might be sympathetic or working on behalf of those who are defined as the enemy. It's always used to crush the left. Edwin Starr, in his 1970 hit song, you may remember it, it was called War. And in that song, he, he asks, what is it good for? And he answers, absolutely nothing. But actually, for weapons manufacturers, it's a bonanza. Uh, in a talk that you gave at the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, uh, some months ago, which we aired on alternative radio, you mentioned seeing Raytheon billboards in Poland. Raytheon being a giant weapons manufacturer. Right. Well, that is why NATO was expanded. I was in Eastern Europe in 1989 with the collapse of the Soviet Union as a reporter covering the revolutions in East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Romania. We naively thought that with the end of the Cold War, NATO had been rendered obsolete. It was a military alliance built specifically to prevent Soviet expansion into Eastern Europe, we, everyone began talking about the peace dividend, uh, so we wouldn't uh, funnel staggering amounts of resources and state revenue towards the military, which of course had gotten insane even by the 1950s where we were building nuclear weapons that uh, uh, it was no longer about what we could destroy in the Soviet Union, but it was geared towards productive capacity so that we could destroy the same Soviet city 20 times over. Those of us who were there turned out to be very naive. The arms industry had no intention of reducing its size or its grip on the state. Uh, it was uh, universally understood that expanding NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany, and let's remember that uh, Secretary of State James Baker and the Reagan administration, Hans-Dietrich Genscher, the German foreign minister, Margaret Thatcher, they all assured Gorbachev uh, that NATO would not be expanded because it was geopolitically unnecessary. Gorbachev was actually looking for a kind of joint security alliance with Moscow, and it would be a, a provocation. And of course, it expanded anyway. Uh, and, and why did it expand? Well, because large corporations uh, like uh, uh, Raytheon stood to gain tremendous amounts of money. Um, and uh, yes, I was in Warsaw a couple of years ago, and there were Raytheon billboards all over the city because, of course, uh, Raytheon is bilking the Poles. The Poles just signed a $6 billion uh, deal to buy M1 Abrams tanks, uh, and uh, uh, and of course we have seen now uh, NATO alliances built with almost every country in Eastern and Central Europe: Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Albania, Croatia, Montenegro, and North Macedonia. Uh, and it's a multi-billion-dollar-a-year bonanza. Uh, and I, I think one of the legitimate complaints on the part of Russia is that the Ukraine is a de facto member of NATO, also supplied with tremendous, and of course this has all been augmented since the invasion uh, and war, uh, but uh, uh, supplied with NATO-compatible weapons and mili I think we had 150 military advisors in there. 
Uh, and, you know, one has to wonder if uh, provoking Russia into a conflict wasn't part of the cynical plan on, on the part of the Western alliance, because, of course, uh, stoking a war, which it's clear that Washington would like to turn into another Chechnya or the old Afghanistan. Remember, Brzezinski, Carter's national security advisor, began arming and supporting jihadists who were based in Pakistan to destabilize the government in Kabul, which was allied with the Soviet Union, baiting the Soviet forces into Afghanistan with the very costly war that ensued. Uh, and they, they clearly want the same thing in Ukraine. They, they, in the parliaments, they want Russia to bleed. But of course, it's really the Ukrainians who bleed. And, and that is the tragedy, that the peace was really sacrificed for U.S. global hegemony. It was sacrificed for billions in profits. The end of the Cold War should have seen us uh, turn away from investing in arms uh, and weapons. Uh, and investing in people rather than systems of control to address the climate emergency. Uh, and of course, none of that is happening. And meanwhile, the greatest existential crisis to face the human species is taking place at an accelerated rate. The Amazon's reaching the tipping point. The, the uh, land ice and ice shelves are melting at a far faster rate than Climate scientists predicted temperatures are soaring, monster hurricanes, floods, droughts, wildfires, crop yields are declining. Uh, and, um, you know, the collective folly of, of the ruling elites is propelling us uh, once again towards permanent war. Brzezinski was a notorious hawk who said he was going to set an Afghan trap. That's a direct quote, I think. Uh, to give the uh, Soviet, then Soviet Union uh, its Vietnam. And it was fairly successful. The Soviets took the bait, as they may have taken the bait uh, this time around as well. There, you know, even Henry Kissinger, not someone I, you know, have uh, any love for, understood that uh, uh, expanding NATO was going to push Russia. I mean, if you have, you look at the history of Russia, especially going back to World War II, they were invaded by the Nazis. Much of the country was destroyed the, a century before. Napoleon did the same thing. They have very legitimate uh, security concerns. NATO has established a missile base in Poland that is 100 miles from the border with Russia. We almost had a nuclear confrontation with the Soviet Union when they attempted to station missiles in Cuba, which is 90 miles from the coast of Florida. We can't excuse what Moscow did. Preemptive war under post-Nuremberg laws is a, a criminal war of aggression. Uh, however, uh, they were clearly pushed and pushed uh, and antagonized and antagonized until, of course, they unfortunately pulled the trigger. Uh, but yes, this, this uh, I think, harkens back to uh, the policy of Brzezinski uh, and uh, or the uh, efforts to fuel the proxy wars that define the Cold War. I mean, and that's essentially what uh, the Ukraine has become. In Death of the Liberal Class, you quote uh, Orwell's essay, Freedom of the Press, in which he says, at any given moment, there's an orthodoxy, a body of ideas, which it is assumed that all right-thinking people will accept without question. Anyone who challenges the prevailing orthodoxy 
finds himself silenced with surprising effectiveness. A genuinely unfashionable opinion is almost never given a fair hearing, either in the popular press or in the highbrow periodicals. Now, you've had some direct experience very recently with being silenced. Uh, Can you talk about your experience and what happened with your program on contact on RTV, RT? Right. So the entire archive of On Contact, which was nominated for an Emmy over the last six years, was disappeared from YouTube. Anyone who watched the program could, it'd be a big stretch to call it Russian propaganda. There was never any show on Russia, uh, but it was really a book uh, where I interviewed authors and intellectuals about their work. And it was a very wonky, serious show, the kind of show that would be on public broadcasting if we had a functioning public broadcasting system that wasn't beholden to wealthy donors and corporate elites for their funding. Some of the most recent shows were an interview with Nathaniel Philbrick on his book about George Washington. Uh, I did a show to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the publishing of James Joyce's Ulysses with Professor Sam Sloat from Trinity College Dublin. Uh, and then the, the, the kind of intellectuals who we should be hearing regularly from who are not beholden to uh, entrenched power, Cornell West, Noam Chomsky, Gerald Horn, uh, Naomi Wolf, uh, Slavo Zizek, uh, all of that's gone. Uh, so those are all, they've been disappeared by YouTube because, of course, it was propagated or put out uh, by uh, RT, American RT International. Well, why? Well, because I had nowhere else to go. Uh, you can put them out on sites, I suppose, where there's absolutely no pay. There's no ability. But, you know, in the end, we all have to pay a mortgage. We have to get something for our work. Uh, so we were people such as myself, Matt uh, and, and Glenn are also in the same position. We've all gone to Substack. So I'm at chrishedges.substack.com, uh, and it's subscriber-based. It's the only way left that we can continue to do our work. So I will go down to the real news and uh, reconstitute my show. I will continue to write for Sheer Post every Monday. This is Bob Shear's column. And of course, we were all fired from Truthdig because we tried to form a union and because we were protesting uh, the attempt by the wealthy publisher to fire uh, Bob Shear, the editor-in-chief. But Bob doesn't have any money. I mean, he runs this thing uh, on a shoestring, basically from his Social Security check. So uh, it's becoming harder and harder uh, for those of us who care about journalistic independence and, and raising the voice of critics and dissidents and uh, challenge this dominant effort, uh, quite successful effort on the part of the established media to render whole sections of the country, and in particular the poor and the working class, invisible. And I think that's, over the law, my long career, quite distressing, that when I began, and I worked for the New York Times for 15 years, there was a place for journalists such as myself. We may have clashed with the newsroom hierarchy. Uh, you know, I'm sure we were considered uh, management headaches, but we were there, people like Sidney Shanberg and others, and now that that uh, space is gone. And so what happened with RT was really a reaction not to RT. They, they've long waited uh, to shut RT down, and they were quite explicit in the 2017 Director of National Intelligence report about why. There are seven pages in that report uh, dedicated to RT, and they 
complain about Russian propaganda, but all of the examples they cite uh, are about giving voice, in their words, to third-party candidates, to Black Lives Matter activists, to Occupy activists, anti-fracking activists, anti-imperialists. That's they 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 tipped their hand. They showed uh, what it what it was that enraged them, uh, and the invasion of the Ukraine gave them the opportunity to do what they have long wanted to do. And now, of course, you're seeing uh, calls to shut down Substack. I think one of the most disturbing realities uh, for me is the way the Democratic Party and the liberal class uh, has signed on for this censorship. We saw the amazing spectacle of Democratic Congress members calling in the CEOs of Facebook and other major digital platforms and asking them to do more to censor content. And that gets into the question why. And, the, and I think the reason is because the ruling establishment, which includes the Democratic Party and the old establishment wing of the Republican Party, is not accepting responsibility for the distortions of neoliberalism and austerity and deindustrialization, which have given rise to these frightened, frightened of them too, these QAnon conspiracy theorists and Christian fascists, who I wrote about, by the way, in a book called American Fascists, The Christian Right and the War in America, these gun-toting militias, the cult-like Republican Party uh, that's now been built around Trump. And so uh, rather than dealing with the endemic social uh, distortions or endemic uh, social inequities that have given rise to the most rapacious oligarchic class in American history, they are, a sense, uh, they are attempting to silence critics, uh, people who I would argue are speaking the truth about the system, and they, they are hoping that that will make it all go away. It's very much like 1932 in Germany. You have the old establishment uh, uh, coalesced around von Papen uh, taking power desperately trying to bring back the Ancien Regime to stave off the Nazis, when in fact what they do uh, by not responding to uh, the very real distress of the German population in Weimar, where, where to service bank loans they actually cut unemployment insurance, made sure or ensured the rise of fascism. And I think we're seeing the same thing with the Biden administration. You know, every promise that Biden made, the $15 minimum wage for giving student loans, his Build Back Better America bill, which has been gutted, which they won't even mention now, the moratorium on foreclosures and uh, bank repossessions being lifted, the cutting of the supplemental income child tax credits, uh, supplements to unemployment. Uh, it, it's a very similar process whereby that myopia or inability to grasp the political, economic, and social reality sees them go, going after the people who call it out. And that's why they did what they did. And uh, YouTube, uh, which disappeared your uh, on-contact uh, archive, is owned by the tech giant uh, Google. I think um, somewhere you mentioned that the last really critical program on public TV was Bill Moyer's um, when he went off the air in 2015, and there hasn't been anything comparable since. Yeah, and it's interesting that in the end, Moyers uh, was not funded by PBS. He got, uh, I think it was the Schumann Foundation, or a foundation actually funded a show. Even PBS wouldn't fund it, uh, and it was reduced to a half hour. Um, so you already saw that shrinking space, and then 
once Moyers was gone, I think that was the last serious exploration of power uh, on public broadcasting. He was not uh, replaced. Uh, there, there's nothing that took his place. And uh, you also quote, uh, well, I'll, I'll quote again, uh, George Orwell on if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they don't want to hear. It is the liberals who fear liberty and the intellectuals who want to do dirt on the intellect. Now, you've focused for many years on the betrayal of the, of the liberal class. What, what is it that they fear, if, if Orwell is spot on, that liberals fear liberty? Well, yes, Orwell is spot on. Um, and that's why Orwell in homage to Catalonia, took on the propagandists for the Republicans like Gellhorn and Hemingway and others, uh, where he included that chapter uh, on the Barcelona uprising by the anarchists that was ruthlessly suppressed. He himself had been fighting in the Pum. He actually, in fact, had been shot through the neck. So, well, what are liberals? I think we owe a great debt to Noam Chomsky, who has... Uh, I think, explain for us, perhaps better than anyone, how the liberal class works. So the liberal class posits itself, I'm stealing all this from Noam, as the kind of moral center, uh, the moral arbiter of society. Uh, and it doesn't want that position assailed in any way. And the quid pro quo with the ruling elite is that they will critique the excesses of a capitalist democracy, of its militarism, etc., but never critique the virtues, never critique the motives. Uh, and as soon as you begin to examine or critique the motives uh, that of the ruling elite, then you are cast out of the liberal class. What's interesting is that the attack dogs uh, that are used to discredit you are the liberals. And I, I will give my own personal experience. My decision to stand up and denounce the call by the Bush administration to invade Iraq saw me excoriated, not by the right. I was excoriated by the right, actually. I was on Rush Limbaugh. I was a punching bag and all this stuff. Uh, but the most effective way to discredit me came from liberals, George Packer, Michael Ignatiev, uh, David Remnick, all these figures who supported the war in the name of humanitarian intervention. And that becomes a very effective Technique. Look at uh, Gary Webb, the guy who broke the investigative journalist who broke the story on San, the San Jose Mercury News. San Jose Mercury News, who broke the story on the collaboration between the CIA and drug dealers uh, shipping cocaine to the United States, taking cash and taking it back to Central America to fund the Contra rebels that were fighting the Sandinistas. How was he taken down? He was taken down by the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, all of the mainstream media. Uh, I've gone back and read those stories. I actually know the reporters who wrote them. Uh, and all they got were briefings from uh, the CIA. They never actually went out and investigated themselves the uh, facts or the evidence that Webb had uncovered. And he was destroyed. Uh, I mean, I think he committed suicide finally, right? But he certainly had no work in the end. Uh, and that's that's a classic example of how the liberal elites are used and why they're allowed to exist. Uh, so, yes, Orwell's spot on. And you see it now. Well, you, you saw it under the whole ridiculous Russiagate stuff where, uh, you know, the idea that Trump was elected by Russia is absurd. But the liberals 
suddenly became the best friends with the FBI and everyone else. I mean, Mueller became an icon in the liberal establishment. You see it now, this kind of warmongering on the part of liberals uh, over Ukraine without any kind of real understanding of uh, the conflict or, I would argue, the, the consequences of this. So um, this is the traditional role of the liberal elites, and it's why people like Noam and I hate them so much. Let's talk about National Public Radio for a moment. You filed for them during the uh, 1980s from Central America. Uh, In a recent uh, nine-minute interview with Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State, she was never asked about the sovereignty of Afghanistan and, and Iraq when those two countries were invaded when she was NSA advised, national security advisor and later secretary of state. So the question is, the question's not asked. What is, is embedded and assumed as proper? And the NPR reporter in, during its nine minutes uh, never had the temerity or the courage or the insight to ask Rice, hey, you know, what about these previous uh, violations of uh, the UN charter and international law? and uh, violations of countries' sovereignties like Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, yeah, because, of course, she wouldn't, the reporter wouldn't keep their job. I remember on the 10th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, there was this uh, fawning half-hour interview with uh, Rumsfeld on NPR. I worked for NPR. I, I, I covered uh, the Falkland War from uh, Buenos Aires for NPR. NPR began as a very different organization, a very scrappy, independent, almost rebellious, and then was co-opted and became essentially no different from the commercial press. In fact, of course, it runs commercials like PBS. They don't call it commercials. They call it sponsorship. They, as you saw, withdrawal of government funding. They leaned more and more on the very centers of financial power that they should be critiquing. I can hardly listen to NPR anymore. And, And of course, they fill their quote-unquote news segment uh, with fluff, with uh, lifestyle stuff and interviews with country western stars and to try and cater to a broad uh, demographic. Now, all of that stuff, I'm not against it. I actually even did reporting like that, but not on the news hour. It's not news. So there's been a terrible corruption within public broadcasting, and that, of course, is part of the problem because public broadcasting is where you should be able to go to hear independent voices. And if you go back to the 1970s, you saw Noam Chomsky or Howard Zinn or even Malcolm X, uh, Angela Davis, uh, James Baldwin, all of these very important figures were given a platform on public broadcasting, but uh, that's gone, that's finished. And that's part of the, the, you know, the whole calcification or the atrophy of, of, of the press within the United States that has really taken place over my own uh, lifetime as a journalist. You're listening to Chris Hedges. Truth is the first casualty of war. This is independent alternative radio. You can get copies of this program. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. 
Uh, Ralph Nader has talked about how he too has been uh, marginalized and uh, has had to do his own program now. Uh, he's, he told me he's getting very few uh, invitations to speak around the country. Well, they went after Ralph in the 1971 Lewis Powell memo, which was the blueprint for corporate uh, control, pushback against the popular movements, what Samuel Huntington called our excess of democracy. They named Ralph. Ralph was in that document. Uh, he was named in that document because, of course, he had built uh, very powerful consumer movements. I think there are 24 bills, uh, the Mining Safety Act, OSHA, all this kind of stuff that Ralph actually wrote and then got put into law with the old liberal wing of the Democratic Party before it was destroyed largely by Clinton. So self-identified liberals now have no relationship, this is part of my book, Death of the Liberal Class, with the actual liberal establishment. They're liberal on cultural or social issues, but are in lockstep uh, with the rest of the ruling elite on issues of war and trade deals and austerity and deindustrialization and everything else. So um, yes, Ralph has been marginalized, I would argue largely blacklisted, uh, because uh, he was targeted and because they're frightened of him. Uh, and that's, of course, why he ran for president, that he it, we couldn't get anything done anymore in uh, Congress, that that with the with the destruction of that real liberal wing, he, he had nowhere else to go. And, and I was I worked as Ralph's uh, speechwriter. Uh, Ralph's argument was that if we can pull 5, 10, 15 million people into a third party, that's the only mechanism we have left to put pressure on the Democratic Party. But of course, the Democrats made war on Ralph, locked, kept him out of the debates. I guess I got some sympathy with that. I wouldn't want to debate Ralph Nader. Challenged his voting lists, even though they were all, they were unimpeachable because they wanted to run up his uh, legal bills and then blamed him for electing Bush, uh, which is a complete distortion of that historical moment because they only counted two counties in Florida, immediately moved it to the Supreme Court where Bush, uh, to find any legal precedent, was anointed president. It was kind of judicial fiat. He, I think even Al Gore says he won. Um, that is a classic example of how the liberal establishment is used to demonize, discredit, and marginalize those figures with integrity to challenge the narrative. I just came back from London. I was invited, one of six guests uh, at Julian Assange's wedding. And then, of course, when I and Craig Murray and others got there, the prison authorities just capriciously, unilaterally, and without explanation, <laughs> refused to let us in. It was just another cruel act, even on Julian's wedding day. Another example of, of uh, somebody who has been discredited largely by the very liberal press establishments that published the material that he gave them through the Iraqi war logs and all this kind of stuff. You said in an article you wrote, I like and admire uh, Julian. He provided the most important body of information of our generation about the war crimes, lies, corruption, and cynicism that defines the ruling elites. This information ripped back the veil on the centers of power around the globe, sparking movements and popular protests from Tunisia to Haiti. Why are they so persistently uh, hostile and aggressive vis-a-vis uh, -vis Julian Assange, who's a 
50-year-old, you know, independent journalist who founded WikiLeaks. He's from Australia. He's not even an American citizen, yet he's being charged under under American law. How does that work? Well, it's judicial farce. I've sat through some of the court proceedings in London, and it's uh, like something out of Alice in Wonderland. I mean, we have to remember that UC Global, the Spanish security firm in the embassy, recorded all of Julian's meetings with his attorneys and turned them over to the CIA, violating attorney-client privilege. I mean, that fact alone uh, should see the trial tossed out. The idea that Julian who's not an American citizen, WikiLeaks is not a U.S.-based publication, can somehow be charged under the Espionage Act. Um, That's a real uh, kind of leap there uh, legally. Uh, Well, why? Because he's the most important publisher uh, of our generation. He uh, shone a light into the inner workings of power in a way that we got pieces here and there before, but no one uh, had come close to doing what he did. He documented U.S. war crimes, including, of course, the video of the collateral murder video. The, he exposed that nearly 700 civilians had been gunned down uh, for approaching too close to U.S. checkpoints. He exposed the hacking tools known as Vault 7 by the CIA that gives the CIA the ability to compromise cars, smart TVs, web browsers, operating systems of smartphones, systems such as Microsoft Windows, uh, etc. He exposed the 15,000 unreported deaths of Iraqi civilians, the torture of 800 men and boys uh, between ages 14 and 89 at Guantanamo. He published the Podesta emails, uh, which exposed the mendacity of Hillary Clinton, uh, including ordering uh, U.S. diplomats to spy on the U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, along with the U.N. representatives from China, France, Russia, and the U.K., and this included uh, their DNA, iris scans, fingerprints, personal passwords. He uh, exposed the complicity of Clinton as Secretary of State and Barack Obama and the CIA in overthrowing the elected president, Manuel Zelaya. Uh, the, our complicity in the war in Yemen, the $657,000 paid to Hillary Clinton to give three talks at Goldman Sachs, a sum so large it can only be considered a bribe, the effort by... Uh, and they sidelined Bernie Sanders. Well, the effort to destroy Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn in the Labor Party. So, you know, that he kind of ripped the curtain back. And for that, he will never be forgiven. Uh, and of course, they're destroying him physically and psychologically. He's in a high security prison, very notorious prison, Belmarsh, outside of London, southeast London. Uh, he's not, unfortunately, in very good condition. It came out in the trial that I covered that he was observed frantically pacing his cell, punching himself in the face, banging his head against the wall, calling the Samaritan hotline because he was, quote unquote, thinking about committing suicide 100 times a day, hallucinating. They're shipping him off to the medical wing. They found a razor under his socks. And then he had a stroke in the middle of his hearing in October. We know he's on antidepressants, anti-stroke medication, anti-psychotic drugs. Uh, he's gaunt. His posture is poor. His color is ashen. And that's really the plan. The plan is to psychologically and perhaps physically obliterate him as an example, they need to crucify Julian as a kind of warning to anyone else who might 
try and expose or shine a light on the inner workings of power. That's why they're so ruthless against him. That uh, video that he made available, the collateral murder, it had uh, the helicopter, the Apache helicopter pilots chortling as they were shooting up the unarmed Iraqis, including, I believe, two Reuters uh, employees. Yes, who were both killed. Just say that that the Reuters bureau chief worked tirelessly to get that video and the military lied. They said they didn't have it, they couldn't find it, and then we only saw it when Chelsea Manning very courageously gave it to WikiLeaks to publish. Uh, Until that time, the narrative that the military had spun out about that incident was a complete fiction. It was a lie. Now, other than uh, you and John Pilger and a handful of others, have uh, any of the major journalists of this era, you know, like uh, David Brooks and Thomas Friedman and Jonathan Capehart and others, have they come to Julian's defense at all? Have they written anything in support of his case? Not that I know of. Um, And again, these people are careerists. They were cheerleaders for the Iraq war, not because they knew anything about the Middle East. Well, Friedman was actually stationed in the Middle East, but because they knew what was good for their own advancement, they were wrong. Everything they wrote about invading and occupying Iraq was wrong, but they're still where they are because they are courtiers. Uh, That's what they do. And Julian is a toxic subject, especially after the release of Vault 7. And, And they are, if nothing else, they're very astute about how to promote themselves. Uh, So, yeah, they're not going to touch Julian. Well, uh, also, I mean, the the whole uh, persecution and prosecution of Julian Assange and other whistleblowers, let's not forget, you mentioned Chelsea Manning, uh, John Kiriakou, Edward Snowden uh, remains in exile and is, you know, probably going to come under more pressure as time evolves. Do you know anything about Snowden's case? I mean, he is in Russia, right? Yes, he's in Russia because... John Kerry took away his passport. He took away his passport. He was in transit to Ecuador, and uh, he got trapped in the airport. He had no passport, and so he was given asylum by Russia. He didn't go to Russia for asylum. He's now in a very difficult position. I think that if... The goal of these sanctions, by the way, is clearly to remove Putin. And if they are able to install a pliant Russian regime, such as Yeltsin, Yeltsin did the bidding of Wall Street and Washington, which is why when he ran for re-election in 1996, uh, the Clinton administration got him, I think it was an 11 or $10 billion IMF loan, of which an estimated $1.5 billion dollars was used to re-elect uh, Yeltsin if they get a pliant regime back there. By the way, I just bring that up when you talk about meddling. Uh, nothing Russia or China or any country has done here comes close to what we have done overseas, and in particular with the Yeltsin re-election. Uh, but if they get a pliant regime in Moscow, they will demand Snowden's extradition without question. Talk about the sanctions uh, as, a, as a weapon of war. Uh, Cuba, for decades now, what is it, 50, 60 years has been subjected to sanctions, Iran, Venezuela, Syria, Afghanistan, and of course now uh, Russia. Who is hurt by sanctions? Well, we know who's hurt by sanctions. It's always the ordinary 
people because the elites have the power and the resources to make sure that they are cushioned from the effects of sanctions. So yes, there always we began by talking about what happened to Iraqi children, but that is part of the cynical game. So you uh, destroy the sustainability of life in a country, and then the goal is that they put pressure. Uh, or you build enough pressure to overthrow the regime. We've tried this in Iran for years and years. It hasn't worked. Uh, we've tried it for decades uh, after decade in Cuba. It hasn't worked. And so even though it's not usually a very effective technique, it's employed. Uh, and unfortunately, the cost is paid by the most vulnerable. Talk about uh, the, the courage of a um, Russian TV employee, uh, Channel One, uh, Marina Ofsayanakova. Uh, she went on a live broadcast and stood behind the anchor holding up a sign, they're lying to you. Uh, she later said, I wanted to show the Russians that they were zombified by the Kremlin propaganda and that they should stop believing it. Can you close your eyes for a moment and imagine, let's say, uh, Martha Raditz, who's the uh, ABC TV uh, foreign correspondent, uh, standing behind David Muir on ABC World News tonight, holding up a sign saying, you know, they're lying to you? I can't imagine that uh, <laughs> um, because uh, these people are well-conditioned and well-trained uh, to serve the centers of power. Uh, that was a very courageous moment. But I think we also have to pay homage to dissident journalists who have long, uh, she had worked for, of course, uh, Russian state media, but there were a series of news organizations that defied Putin's censorship uh, over the years and paid a very heavy price for it, a few of whom were killed, and they were all shut down. So uh, that single act of defiance was certainly courageous, but I don't want us to lose sight of those real journalists who uh, had for years pushed back against the Putin regime uh, and now, of course, have been essentially banished from the media landscape. Talking about uh, West Asia and specifically uh, the ongoing uh, situation with uh, the Palestinians, Israel was um, accused by Amnesty International in a report uh, that it was uh, essentially an apartheid state. Uh, this story uh, ran on page 12 of the New York Times, and uh, there was a subheadline, Israeli officials uh, denounce the, the claims made by uh, Amnesty. Uh, you've you're been a supporter of the BDS movement, the Boycott Divestment Sanction Movement. Uh, do you think it's been effective? Yes, not, not because institutions or universities have actually disinvested funds in Israeli companies, but in terms of raising consciousness, very effective. And that's why Israel has really mounted war against it, including getting state legislatures to pass legislation that criminalizes support for BDS. Israel has lost control of the narrative. They have been exposed at not only as an apartheid state, but as an occupier who uses disproportionate military power. Uh, and uh, I think that reality now is no longer hidden, uh, especially to younger a younger generation and, and American, young American Jews who no longer have that emotional attachment to Israel that perhaps their parents or their grandparents had. I mean, I always try and meet with students for justice 
in Palestine groups when I'm at universities, and I would say a significant percentage, a third, sometimes more, of those students are Jewish. Uh, and this, of course, is uh, deeply disturbing to Israel that is responding in a very similar way to the way the ruling elites are responding in the United States, uh, and that is to essentially shut down those organizations that amplify the truth uh, about what's happening rather than curb or change their behavior. And it's why, of course, Israel is building an alliance with the Christian right, I would call them the Christian fascists, who, by the way, are very anti-Semitic. I mean, this is kind of the irony of it, uh, because they don't have any popular support and why they're pushing through this kind of legislation to criminalize anybody who supports BDS. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, your criminal activity because you won't buy an Israeli product. So I think it is effective, not in perhaps the way it was designed, but it's effective as a tool for education, for allowing people to understand the, the reality of Israeli occupation. Now, there is such a thing, a horrible thing, as anti-Semitism. Uh, and then there is also the legitimate uh, criticism of a particular state and its policies. Uh, how do you separate those two? Well, attacking a state is not the same thing as attacking somebody for being Jewish or even attacking the Jewish religion. But of course, what Israel has done quite effectively is equate any criticism of the state of Israel and its ruling ideology, Zionism, as anti-Semitic. In fact, of course, I think that they have done a great disservice to those of us who are anti-racist because it's fed the narrative of, of radical anti-Semitic right-wing groups. And that inability to make a distinction, I think, has had a kind of boomerang. I think it's been counterproductive to Israel. But it's been an effective technique to silence critics of the Israeli state, of course, many of whom are Jewish. I mean, and then they've got a term for that, self-hating Jew. I'm sure they've thrown that at Nome and others. Uh, that's a distinction that the Israeli government doesn't make, but I believe they should make. The late Howard Zinn was a critic, uh, Amy Goodman, uh, right. Richard Falk, uh, Norman Finkelstein. There are uh, many American Jews who are critical of um, Israeli state uh, policy. Well, where do you see that going? I mean, how is that issue going to be resolved? Are the Palestinians in this perpetual chokehold with no way out? Yeah, because they have no power. Nobody will stand up. There's no, they're powerless. And because of that, even countries in the Middle East, uh, they may pay lip service to Palestinian rights, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, but they don't do anything uh, because the Palestinians themselves ha have no, they can't project power outwards. Uh, and that's, of course, what's been trapped. I think the only mechanism we have left is uh, the BDS movement. It's really modeled on the divestment movement uh, uh, against the apartheid regime in South Africa. And, and, and it's also nonviolent. And that's why I'm a very strong supporter of BDS. I think if we can build that kind of movement, that's probably the best mechanism we have to put pressure. And, and it's clear that the Israeli government is quite frightened of it. We have reports that they have a whole office set up that they're funding quite lavishly to counter the BDS movement, which has been effective in the United States, but extremely effective in uh, Europe. 
One aspect of the issue is the Syrian Golan Heights, which has been annexed formally uh, into the state boundaries of uh, Israel. There's very little commentary about that. Yeah, well, I mean, the violation of international law, uh, which is, ex- you know, expansion of Israel, uh, East Jerusalem, uh, which is occupied territory, uh, of course, the settlements themselves, uh, the Israeli government keeps threatening to make them part of Israel, but it, they are a de facto, in a kind of way, incorporated into the Israeli state. So Israel, since its inception in 1948, has carried out a kind of administrative, uh, they carried out a very physical and brutal uh, campaign of ethnic cleansing. It's how people ended up in Lebanon, Gaza, and Jordan, Palestinians. But there's been a kind of ongoing administrative ethnic cleansing uh, and seizing of territory. Ilan Pape wrote a, quite a good book about this. We uncovered some fascinating documents. Even I, who had covered the Middle East and been there seven uh, years, didn't grasp how old that plan was, a predating the 1967 war, long been the plan of Israel to essentially crush uh, Palestinian rights, uh, to make life as a Palestinian so difficult that they would be forced to leave the country. That's long been a plan uh, going, you know, almost back to the inception of the Israeli state. I think it was uh, Moshe Dayan, the uh legendary Israeli uh, general and war hero who said uh, of the Palestinians, they can live like dogs or they can leave. Yeah, well, that's that really is probably the good summation of Israel's policy towards the Palestinians. And we, we cannot underestimate the horror uh, of life in Gaza, the world's largest open-air prison. Clean drinking water is almost impossible to come by. People are crowded, 10, 15 people into a room, uh, they are routinely, they call it mowing the lawn, routinely attacked with heavy weapons, including I've been in Gaza when the Israeli Air Force has bombed refugee camps. And you hear uh, the, the announcement out of Jerusalem, and they're talking about surgical strikes against bomb-making factories. And I'm physically there, and the entire block is gone, and I'm looking at the bodies of children. So uh, it, this is Israeli policy. It's a campaign of ongoing terror and uh, as a way to essentially reduce the Palestinian population and expand Israeli hegemony. What sources do you turn to for information? Well, like any news junkie, I consume a lot of sources. Uh, I do read the New York Times. I listen to BBC NewsHour pretty much every day. I like Amy Goodman. I read a series of sites, including Aretz, by the way, the Israeli newspaper, which I think has some of the best coverage of the Palestinians. I read foreign press like Le Monde. I uh, look at sites, uh, Counterpunch. And I look for, for, like any journalist, I often look for writers themselves. I was great friends with Robert Fisk, who did wonderful coverage on the Middle East. I really didn't care where Fisk's story was published. I uh, would read it. So oftentimes I look for journalists who whose reporting I trust. 2022 is the uh, centenary of uh, Howard Zinn's birth. 
Uh, you use his classic book of people's history of the United States in your classes uh, with prisoners. What is it about uh, Zinn's work that is so exemplary and that inspires you to use his book? Well, it was interesting. So I was teaching mostly black men in a prison. And I always admired Zinn, of course. But teaching the class uh, drove home to me that these men had never been taught their own history. Zinn is very cognizant of the African-American uh, experience from the beginning of the book to the end. And I would be giving these 90-minute talks on whatever section of the book we were reading, and I would hear students go, damn, we've been lied to. And of course, they had been lied to. And they were just enthralled. They couldn't get enough. And I used uh, Anthony Arnov's and uh, Zinn's companion book, which had original documents. So it had uh, Sojourner Truth, St. I Woman, and Frederick Douglass's Fourth of July speech. And I would have students come up and read the original text before the class began. And I remember, I think it was with Sojourner Truth, I went to collect it. And the student who read it, can I, can I take it back and put it on the wall of my cell? Uh, so I came away from that class with a much deeper understanding and appreciation for Zinn as a historian, because he was telling stories that meant something, stories that ruling academics who couldn't wait to write another biography about Teddy Roosevelt don't tell. And also Zinn understood that the real advances within the United States came through movements, that the inception of the country, which was uh, set up by white, male, aristocratic, largely slave holders, was uh, meant to thwart popular democracy. And that's quite clear in the Federalist Papers. Uh, all the people that were disenfranchised, women, Native Americans, African Americans, men without property, it was a battle uh, for them to find their place within American society. And American society was very violent in terms of suppressing that struggle for justice. We had the bloodiest labor wars of any country in the industrialized world. Hundreds of American workers were murdered. Tens of thousands were blacklisted. Of course, we know the history of the reign of terror that continues to this day against uh, African Americans. And it was the, the courage of those movements, the abolitionist movement, the suffragists, the civil rights movement, the labor movement, that created a more inclusive country. And, and Zinn uh, grasp that point. And that's an extremely important point. And that's why Zinn kept warning us uh, correctly, stop talking about elections. Elections are fine, but without popular movements, you get nowhere. It's the great Emma Goldman quote, uh, if elections were that effective, they'd be illegal. And they want to reduce our political participation to going off and voting for one corporate-controlled Democrat who's campaigning against uh, another corporate-controlled Republican. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, David. You were just listening to Chris Hedges, Truth is the First Casualty of War. I talked with him on March 28th. Chris Hedges is an award-winning journalist who's reported from the Balkans, the Middle East, and Central America. He writes a weekly column for Sheer Post. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit and in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Noam Chomsky, Vandana Shiva, Angela Davis, and Ralph Nader. And we have a series of programs with Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, 
just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Chris Hedges, Truth is the First Casualty of War, and for Howard Zinn's classic book, A People's History of the United States, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Our theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Yeah, summers in Rio and can be real scorchers, so I cover up a sunscreen. Before I go out, I set my sunscreen down by a radio locked to CJSW, 90.9 FM Calgary. It goes from SPF 15 to SPF radio. I'm gonna put some on right now. Yeah, you can really feel the radio. CJSW, 90.9 FM. Radio you can feel. <laughs> 